Well, please take your Bibles with me, if you would, and uh, turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And if you would, follow along as I read a psalm of praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, And will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. And kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever. Endeavor. It is that time of year, isn't it, when we come to consider how we might do things differently for the next year. We make resolutions, commitments, goals, and such things. And uh, often these are noble tasks. But how's this for a New Year's resolution? Developing a habit of praising God every single day. This is what David says that he intends to do. Verse 2, he says, Every day I will bless you. And of course, this was not merely a resolution for one year. This was a plan that he had to fulfill and to continue throughout all eternity. I will praise your name forever and ever. David sets before us an often neglected priority, one which we often give lip service to, one 
which we know that we should do, but which often gets left out or set aside in the midst of our busyness or other priorities or our eyes simply being upon earthly and visible things. And that is to praise the name of the Lord, to praise the name of our God. This is what this psalm is all about, and he has a lot of reasons to do so that he lays out, but the simple fact is that this is what we ought to be doing, praising God for who he is and what he has done. This is, as it says here, a psalm of David, and it is the only psalm that is entitled a psalm of praise. Not that other psalms are not about the praise of the Lord, to be sure, but this one majors on that particular theme. It praises God through and through. It speaks of reasons why God should be praised. And what you have in this psalm is a series of responses to certain things that are true about God interspersed with statements of fact about God, statements of who he is, what he has done, and then the various types of responses that come from various groups of people to whom God not only displays but also even gives his blessings. God's works, God's glory, God's power, all of these are manifest in the world, in his creation, to his creatures, and we have a particular response that we ought to give to those revelations of his greatness. So what we'll find in this psalm is that men will and should offer praise to God for three major things. Men will and should offer praise to God for three major things, and he'll lay them out in the sections that follow. The Lord deserves praise, first of all, for the greatness of his works, for the greatness of his works. As we consider why God is to be praised, this is where David starts in verses 1 through 10. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever. And ever. Before he even gets into the detailed reasons, David starts off in these first couple of verses with personal praise. Personal praise. He gives a commitment of what he intends to do. This is not a promise of a particular frequency per se, other than simply to say, I intend to do this daily. He's not saying I will do this for a certain amount of time each day. He's not saying I will do this at a certain amount of time each day. But he's saying this is going to become part of what I do. In fact, it likely is already a part of what David does. He refers to him as my God. My God. Personally appropriating the fact that this God rules not only over all things, but also that he, in a certain sense, belongs to David. David is possessed, as all other people are, by God, and yet there is a closeness here, and there is an ownership that he is taking of his relationship with God. David is personally dedicated and devoted to God, and so he is not simply God at a distance, but he says, this is my God, not, of course, as opposed to other real gods, which we know from Scripture are non-existent, but Simply, he is saying, the one true God is close to me, and I am close to him, and he is mine. He is my God. Sadly, it seems that the only kinds of times that people speak today about my God is often either with an unsanctified O in front of the phrase, or 
when they want to reshape God after their own image and say something like, my God would never do something like this. My God is not like that. My God would never do X, Y, and Z. But David does say he is my God. And I wonder if you can identify with this kind of language. Is God for you simply someone who is at a distance? He is someone that people relate to. He know, you know that you should relate to him and you know that other people do, but there is not this direct line that you have from your soul to God. You don't look at him and think he is my God. I want to draw near to him. You just think he's out there and he's the right God and he's the true God. But I'm not so sure that I'm comfortable calling him my God. David's language challenges us here to appropriate what is true about our relationship to our creator. He calls him my God. And not only is he David's God, but he is David's king. Now consider, David is the king, or at least is in line to become the king when he is writing the Psalms. But he recognizes that neither he nor Saul nor even the son that would follow David immediately is the ultimate king. That David himself, the king, has a king. The real king, regardless of our position in life and the, the power we may assimilate or accumulate to ourselves, is God. God is our king. He is the one who rules over all. And therefore, because he is the ruler in all of these senses of being God, of being king, David says, I will extol you. I will extol you. Not a word that many of us often use. It refers to the idea of being lifted up and made high and made lofty. Uh, to be exalted is the idea. I'm going to exalt you, God. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can you do this? He's already exalted. You're already acknowledging that he is high up by virtue of the fact that he is God and he's your king. We know that it is true that God is lifted up and he is lofty and exalted over all of his creation. So how can we do this? That sounds a little bit presumptuous, doesn't it? And there's a way in which we can speak of God and speak of lifting him up that can be presumptuous. But what David's doing here is not that. What David's doing there is saying, I am going to speak of you and think of you and act toward you in a way that reflects the reality of your status above me and above everyone else. I will extol you. I will praise you. I will sing to you. I'm going to speak of you in a way that puts you in your proper position, functionally speaking, with regard to my heart and my attitude and the way that I think about you and the way that I act. This is what it means to extol God. Not that we make God great, but that we treat him as what he really is. David is committed to do this for his God, the king. Not only will he lift him up, but he says, I will bless your name forever and ever. As we've considered recently, the idea of his name simply is a stand-in for all that God is, all that he does, uh, all who he is. And he says, I intend to bless your name, to bless your name. Now, the idea of blessing here, it's kind of interesting because it, when it goes in one direction, it means something somewhat different than when it goes in another direction. When we speak of being blessed by God, we speak of receiving benefits and of receiving favor and of getting things from him. When God blesses us, there's a sense in which he's giving us things that we would not otherwise have. He is distributing something to us. But 
When we bless God, we are speaking favorably of him for his ability to do those things. So it's kind of the same street, but it's different kinds of traffic in each direction. With God blessing us, he is giving. With us blessing God, we are acknowledging and we're speaking well of him and thinking well of him uh, for what he has done for us. Because in the ultimate sense, we have nothing to give to him but our very blessing, but our response to him. We don't have the ability to give to God the kinds of things he gives to us, and he doesn't need it in the first place. So when we bless God, what we're doing is acknowledging his greatness, and we are speaking as highly of him as we possibly can. This is what God deserves. And so God says, excuse me, David says, I will do this. This is a commitment. It is more than a mere statement of fact. It is an intention, perhaps even a resolution, we might call it. I will bless your name forever and ever. And you'll note here that this is not the only time he states his plans and his intentions so boldly and so directly in this psalm. Verse 2, every day I will. Verse 2 again, every day I will. Verse 5, on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Verse 6, I will tell of your greatness. He says this all the way to the end. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. These are strong statements. Now, many of us are cautious, and I think rightly so, about the dangers of self-centered expressions of worship, or so-called worship, because much of modern worship, so-called, is actually really just about one's own self, and in particular, how a person feels. God, you make me feel this way. This is what I'm excited about. This is how I'm feeling at the moment. Now, even at that, there is a place in the scriptures for expressing to God how you feel, for talking about how you feel, but unfortunately, that seems to be where things often end when it comes to expressions of one's own heart toward God. So we need to be careful and cautious that we are not overly concerned with speaking about what we are doing and our activity in worship. Worship is about God, and we should take care that we don't make it about us. And yet it's clear from this psalm that there is very much a place for not only committing, but also expressing a commitment to worshiping the one true God. David states that here, and it's as if he's getting himself as if he's getting himself on the record and saying, this is what I'm going to do. I am intending to praise you in this way. And even more behind the message is, God, you deserve for me to do this. He's expressing publicly in this psalm that would be written and sung publicly and published and recorded ultimately in the scriptures. He's saying, I'm going to do this. It's okay to talk about this in this regard not to draw attention to oneself, not to tally up how many times or how many days in a row you might bless God, not so that people will think that you're holy. We'll see that toward the end of the chapter when he talks about the sincerity of heart that a person needs to have in approaching God. But there is a reality here to his intention to praise, and we ought to learn from his example. There's a commitment to praise God. We resolve to do a lot of things yearly, monthly, quarterly, whatever it might be, and many of those can be good things, but many of them 
are often the kinds of things we can only do for this life, you know, lose a few pounds or whatever that might be. But we learn in 1 Timothy 4 that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Why? Because uh, physical discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, Paul says, since it has value for the present life and also for the life to come. And that's what David expresses here. I will praise your name forever and ever. There are things that we can resolve and commit to do that are good for a season and even appropriate in our particular season of life because they are the means to the end of living a life that glorifies God. And yet this is the kind of thing that if we begin to do it now and if we commit to do it and if we are in the practice of doing it, it's the kind of thing that we will never have to stop even when this life is over. It's a wonderful practice then to get into the habit of blessing God's name, praising his name. As David says, I will praise your name forever and ever. David's personal expression of praise gets us started. And now we look in earnest to the reasons why God is worthy of praise. We find in verse 3 that David speaks about God's intrinsic greatness, his intrinsic greatness. That is the greatness that he has in and of himself, even if he were never to actually do anything with it in the sense of us being able to see it or creating something. God simply is great. He just is that. Verse 3 says, great is the Lord and highly to be praised. Great is the Lord. The first mention, by the way, of God by his name here, the Lord Yahweh. We are, of course, talking about a very specific God, the God of the Bible, the God that revealed himself as this covenant-keeping God to Israel in the Old Testament, among others. Here is the specific God that we are to praise, not just a general idea of God as such, but we are to praise the God who made all things, the God who gave us the Bible, and the God who revealed us, revealed himself to us in this way. And so we praise him for who he is, not for any kind of idea of what we come up with him being like. Instead, we praise him according to his revealed truth. This Lord, the Lord, is in fact great. And this is what drives David. He understands how great he is. This is what makes David want to praise him because he realizes how praiseworthy he is. The Lord is great and highly to be praised. Very strongly to be praised is the idea. It's a wonderful picture here that he is so worthy of this. And it says here in verse 3 that even though God is great, and highly to be praised for that greatness, at the same time, we can never fully understand just how great God is. It says his greatness is unsearchable. He is great. He is exalted. He is lofty. First Chronicles 29, 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. And yet, he says, your greatness is unsearchable. Imagine going out on a boat and trying to drop your anchor down to the bottom and it just continues to go and 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 it just never hits the bottom. That's the idea. It is unfathomable. You cannot find out how deep it is. You can't even measure it. David says, great is the Lord. And you say, well, how great is he, David? He says, well, really great, but I can't really tell you because I can't measure it. I can't calculate it. 
I've never been able to finish and I never will be. That's how great God is. So God is intrinsically worthy of praise. And uh, even if he never did anything or if anyone never knew about it, he would be great and worthy of praise. And yet it is the appropriate response of us as his creatures, the one that he has made, to do many things, but one of them is to praise him and to bless him for all that he is, for his greatness and in light of his greatness. Again, even if God had never done anything, he is worthy to be praised. But as it turns out, God has done things. And this is what David turns next to consider in verses 4 through 7, namely God's praiseworthy acts. God's praiseworthy acts, not just his intrinsic greatness, but his praiseworthy acts. And so he praises God for the greatness of his works as he considers these. Verse 4 says, one generation shall praise your works to another. These are the things, the works that God does, the kinds of, the practices that God has done, the acts he has done, and the kinds of things that he does do. So it's both what actually has happened and the kinds of things that he does, and then implicitly even behind that, the abilities that he has to do those things. But it is more about action here than what we will look at a bit later, which is the moral character of those actions. Here it's about his power, his glory, his majesty that is worthy of praise and is put on display in the things that he has done. And as David turns to speak of these things, these acts, not just who God is, but his acts that are displaying this, uh, he widens the scope of praise. It's not just him that's involved anymore. Now he says, one generation shall praise your works to another One group of people living at a certain time will praise it to the next and to the next and to the next on down the line. And so this praise is not just to be limited to David, limited to David as one individual person or to his family or to his friends. And it's not even just the people living at the same time, which would broaden it out quite a bit even at that as David is calling for people in his day to praise God. But this is supposed to be people on down the line, generational praise of God that is passed down, passed down from one generation to another. This generation shall praise your works, shall tell what God has done. Here, his mighty acts, he says, are to be declared. They're to be declared. Sometimes we get sidetracked with regard to what God has done and we start to speak about Uh, certain questions about it, and it becomes a little bit more of a debate or a discussion. But here David says, God's mighty acts are not so much matters to be debated or discussed, but rather to be declared, to be reported or announced. There's a degree of emphasis here. This is just how things are. God did this, and God is to be praised for them because this is what he has done. And we are to tell other people, God did all of this. So here he is commending the idea of telling other people what God has done. They shall declare your mighty acts. Um, It is sometimes appropriate to try to accomplish various things in life, to try to do things that uh, other people may even consider impressive, not for the sake of impressing them, but nonetheless for uh, just the sake of doing them and trying to do a good job and things. But we need to realize that 
anything that we do or anything that we see other people do, which we often tend to praise them for, doesn't even compare to the achievements and the mighty acts of the Lord. And it ought to be of these that we are speaking most prominently. As it is, it's very easy to be carried around from one successful and accomplished person, performer, speaker, whoever it might be, to another. Here, he says, we are to focus on declaring the mighty acts of God. And so this is to take place generationally. One generation shall praise your name to another. Listen, younger people, younger people, there are a lot of things that the older generation does that are not appealing to you at all. There are ways of doing things from decades ago that may not necessarily be better or worse. And it's okay to say, I don't want to do things the way that they were done in certain categories 50 years ago, 20 years ago. But you do need to realize that there are some things that transcend generational trends. And it's not just cultural values, and it's not just traditions, but rather the top in all of this is the works of God and praising him. This is the kind of thing that should have been passed down from the very beginning through every single person who has ever lived on the earth. And so whatever you might think about a previous generation or an older generation not having anything to say to you, Make sure that you don't throw out this baby with the bathwater and say, well, we might not want to live exactly the same way as before, but you know, one thing we do need to make sure we do is listen when they talk about how great God is. One generation shall praise your works to another. At the same time, older people, what are you busy passing down? What are you busy passing down? Are you passing down your ways of doing things? Are you passing down how great things used to be when you were that age? Are you passing down nostalgia or are you passing down the praise of the Lord? Are you declaring the mighty works of God? And are you taking the time to tell younger people about the mighty works of God? Is this what gets you excited to talk to them about? Are you worried about them fixing this or doing this thing or preserving a certain type of living? Or are you saying, I need to tell them about the praise that they need to be giving to God? I need to declare God's mighty acts. I need to talk about the things that he has done in my life personally and give testimony to how he's worked in my life and my family's life. I need to make sure that I am declaring his mighty acts. And so while there is an appropriate place for teaching all kinds of lessons, practically speaking, technical lessons and skills, all kinds of wisdom that you pass down, We need to make sure that we are not missing the heart of everything that people need to know, which is the greatness of God. This is what we ought to be looking to pass down from one generation to another. David says, this is what will be done. This is what shall happen. It's what should happen. He continues in verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, the glorious splendor of your majesty. What a phrase. Just think about that. Think about the things that you find the most aesthetically pleasing. Architecture or painting or things that have been designed, whatever it is. The things that you look at and you say, that is just beautiful. That is just glorious. I just want to observe that. Whatever that might be. Look at this and consider David says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty. This is what God has. It's what he possesses. The challenge, of course, for us is it doesn't just throw itself in our face the way that visible earthly things do. 
And so those things just take the time out of their day, if you will, to come and to point out to us, hey, look at me. I am aesthetically appealing. But with God, we have to just go one layer deeper. With creation, we have to think about not only the creation itself, but who made it and the glory that must be behind the one who created all these beautiful things that we can observe. With the other part of this is that we have to actually go to God's word and we have to look and we have to respond in this way by faith because we're not going to see so much of who God is. In fact, God himself being invisible, we will not see what he is like in the visible sense. And yet when we come to God's word, we can observe with the eyes of faith the very thing that David describes here, the glorious splendor of God's majesty. We learn what he is like. We don't have to see him to know that he is more beautiful and appealing than anything that his creation has to offer. And David says on this, on your majesty and on your wonderful, that is your amazing works, I am going to meditate. I'm going to meditate. A little bit of a curveball here, isn't it? In this moment, he is not speaking to someone. He is not praising God directly with his words. What's he doing? He's musing on something. He says, I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to even think about it. This is at the root, of course, of speaking about it. It's very hard to speak to others about things that you're not actively talking about. And you know what this is like. You want to get in the setting. You want to offer something that's encouraging. Let me bring something from Scripture, but you know, maybe you haven't been thinking about it very much lately, and you're having trouble with bringing something to mind. Here, David is going to meditate, and that certainly will help him to express his praise, but even in and of itself, this is what he intends to do, just as a worthy endeavor of its own. His attention and his thoughts are going to be given to God's majestic splendor and to God's wonderful works. He's going to think about who God is and his glory, and he's going to think about what God has done. And here he sets for us an example of pondering the one true God, not pondering and speculating and questioning in the kind of attacking, subversive way that many people do, but rather meditating upon the character and the activities the actions, the works of God and his greatness. This is a model for us. This is what we should consider doing. This is what we need to think about when we say, what might need to change in the upcoming year? Well, what gets in the way of doing this? When we have some moments to think about God's greatness, what do we do with those moments? What do you put into your mind instead? Do you say, I'm going to meditate upon God's wonderful works, and I'm going to do so by bringing to mind who he is, what he's done, the scriptures. I'm going to put a Bible in front of me, I'm going to listen to something about that. Instead, what do we do? We fill our mind with things that crowd that out. This is something we need to give our attention to, and it's very difficult to do in our world, and yet it's something God deserves, that we might meditate upon the one true God and his greatness and his deeds. Verse 6 says, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, those acts which cause fear and awe. In the right category, this word refers to something, this idea of awesome uh, can refer to something that's even dreadful. Consider the, uh, the picture of Israel responding to God, speaking the Ten Commandments from this rumbling, burning, smoking mountain at Mount Sinai. 
This is the kind of response, the, the fear and awe. God does these kinds of things. And it says that men will speak of these things. This is other people's response. And I'm going to do that too. I will tell of your greatness. I will tell of your greatness. David continues in verse 7. They, these men, shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. And I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. There is a little bit of a shift now that begins to take place. Uh, It's not just the amazing power and ability of God's acts, but now David is starting to shift over into the character of God and God's acts. And although you can't separate these things, there is a slight shift indeed. He says in verse 7, they shall eagerly utter, uh, excuse me, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Do you see here the character of God that is on display? God is good and God is righteous. And not only, again, are these matters not up for debate, but rather for declaration, but these are things that we ought to follow this pattern of eagerly believing and speaking. This generation, these men shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. This means to gush, to gush about God, to pour out and speak profusely things that are good about him. I think we might have a long way to go to get there. His abundant goodness, and this will be something, he says the memory, eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. Uh, Really, the idea here is basically the what God uh, would be memorialized for, if you will. Not that that's the intrinsic idea of the word, but that's kind of the sense, the, the renown, um, what people recall, his, his fame for something. And if you think about uh, the memory of men who have lived and who have died from a long time ago, when we speak about the memory of those men, it's not just their names of these people throughout history. What are we thinking about? We're thinking about something that they did that, that left a lasting reputation and fame for those people. The only difference with God, of course, is that he continues to do things. And he is not merely a memory, but rather he is one to be remembered even as he continues on and we become the memory. We pass it down generationally from one generation to another and we should be eager to pour out and to shout joyfully about God's works and his goodness. So God's works are on display as we found here in verses four through seven in his praiseworthy acts. And then they are on display in his mercy toward creation, verses eight through 10. His mercy toward creation. His creation. David is talking about God's works for the past few verses, and now he steps aside for a moment and says, This is who God is fundamentally. And then he says, This character, he, he kind of steps back into the lane and says, This character is also applied to God's works. So God's works are great, but also God is merciful, and his mercy toward his works are great. Let's look at what he says. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. This is a sort of divine plagiarism, if you will. Not really plagiarism. He, everybody knows where he gets this from. But this is basically almost 100% lifted from Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, it says there, 
uh, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This phrase is known to all people in Israel throughout their history. This is who he is. Uh, And at the core of God's greatness is this feature of his character, that he does not deal with people according to the punishment that they deserve. He doesn't do it. Now, in some levels, and eventually, people will get what they deserve if they are outside of Jesus Christ. But God is gracious, and God is kind. He is patient. He doesn't just respond immediately. He is slow to anger. He's great in loving kindness. He is a God who, in a very real way, lets things go. He doesn't just bring consequences for sin immediately. And very often, in certain ways, he gives us mercy for them, for our sins and for our wrongs, uh, and instead of certain direct consequences at all. It's amazing that God is able to do this. Every sin we know that has ever been committed is dealt with appropriately, of course. People who are outside of Christ are judged for their sins, and they will receive eternal punishment. We saw that. We'll see this in verse 20. Uh, the wicked he will destroy. But God deals with the sins of his believing people by placing them upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And so we don't have to face judgment for that. And because of all of this, God is able to act out his character in this particular way as well, that he is slow to anger, that he is patient, um, he is merciful. Here God in his righteousness is put on display. If you, if you care about truth, and you care about mercy at the same time, we should care about both. You, you know how difficult it is to handle both of these things at the same time, don't you? I mean, th- th- this is the, the thread that we all, the needle we all try to thread. This is it's very difficult. Um, and we often skew one and distort it when it neglects or misuses the other. We, we pretend to be about the truth, but we're unmerciful. And then we pretend to be merciful, or we are supposedly merciful, and we throw out the truth to do it. These two things are not against each other. They find perfect union in God, and they can find perfect union in believers as well, and yet it's very difficult, and it is something to marvel at in God that he is able to execute these things perfectly and possess these attributes in perfect harmony with one another. But he is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's great in loving kindness. He is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. And even though the curse of sin and death still exists over God's creation for the current time, even though this is the case, even throughout that, God's mercies extend to the same scope. And he is gracious and kind in this world. And these are shown in many, many ways. As a result of this mercy that is given toward his works, all these things that give God praise for his greatness... uh, All your works, he says, shall give thanks to you. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And your godly ones shall bless you. Everything that you have made will praise you. I love the picture of this. It's like it goes beyond things that are actually uh, able to consciously turn and praise God. Just everything gives thanks to God. All your works shall give thanks to you. And then specifically, your godly ones, your saints, your people will bless you because of all of this. This is what we ought to do. We ought to consider God's works, think about what God has done, praise him for who he is and for his greatness. Well, got a little carried away in this first section here, so we'll have to uh, 
perhaps move a little more quickly as we look at the rest of this psalm. However, there's some worthy things here that we want to consider. In these verses that follow, there's a continuation, but also a new important theme arises in the next three verses, and one that David says is particularly worthy of praise, that is God's kingdom. God's kingdom. And so God deserves praise for the greatness of his works, but not only that, also for the glory of his kingdom. For the glory of his kingdom. Verse 11 says, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. Verse 12, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Here is this first uh, mention of this idea of God's kingdom in this psalm. God's kingdom has multiple dimensions, but two main things. When we think about God's kingdom, we think about his universal and eternal rule over all things. Everything in creation belongs to him and is under his sovereign control. It always has been, it is now, and it always will be. But beyond that, there is a way in which God at various points in history has actually exercised in the world a more direct rule. Uh, And he has done so through various people and kings and so on. And there will then, of course, come a day when these things are united together where the kingdom of this world, as Revelation says, has become the kingdom of our Lord. And these things merge. So here we find him speaking about this in both sort of the general sense and then also uh, this aspirational sense of what is going to come. So he says in verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here... We find that not only are people speaking about the greatness of God's character and God's works, but also this kingdom that he rules over and that he is going to bring into the world. One day, God's kingdom will come on earth and his will will be done as it is in heaven. This is what we're supposed to pray for in Matthew 6. If we're going to pray for it, we ought to be excited about it. And if we're excited about it, then maybe we should tell other people and we should talk to other people about it. God's kingdom is a subject for great praise. In fact, when it comes to the messaging that we should have as Christians, the very last verse of the book of Acts, we find that the apostle Paul was doing this, Acts 28, 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So he is talking about the Messiah, the Christ, And he's talking about the kingdom of God. This ought to be on our minds, not far away from it, but in fact at the forefront so often, this is what God is doing. Very often, it's very easy to get caught up in the kingdoms of this world and all that pertains to that. And uh, many of us would have to admit that there is disproportionate interest given to the kingdoms of this world as over against the kingdom of God. We should perhaps consider that when we speak about kingdoms and such matters, we should look at the one that is certain to come, the one that already in some form God is working, and uh, we ought to praise him for that and speak of that and eagerly talk about it. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, he says, and this is what makes it, uh, among other things, vastly superior to any earthly kingdom. We read in Daniel chapter 4, The words of King Nebuchadnezzar, verses 34 and 35. 
At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He deserves to be praised and honored in no small part because he has a kingdom that, unlike the kingdoms of this world, will not pass away. It is greater than any other kingdom, and it endures when they are gone. So God deserves praise for this. He deserves praise for the greatness of his works. He deserves praise for the glory of his kingdom. And also, thirdly and finally, in a time when this kingdom has not yet been realized, God puts some of his most precious activity on display. And we praise him, thirdly, for the graciousness of his care. The graciousness of of his care. You'll notice in verses 14 through 20, the repetition of the word all or every. Verse 14, all who fall, all who are bowed down. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you. Verse 16, every living thing. Even verse 17, God's, uh, it's in all his ways, in all his deeds. But the focus is upon the extent of the recipients of his blessings here. Verse uh, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, all who call upon him in truth. Verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. There is a comprehensiveness to this. God is not, in that sense, uh, someone who is selective or plays favorites. God is willing to give of himself to a worldwide audience. God's graciousness of care is put on display in two major ways. First of all, in his help to his creatures. His help to his creatures. The Lord sustains all who fall, raises up all who are bowed down. Consider someone in these positions, someone who has fallen. Ever been trying to go and do something? Maybe you're walking for a long time, running for a long time, or anything like that, where you're just exerting yourself physically, and something happens, and your legs just give out. And your body just, and you just collapse. And you, you just can't do it anymore. You're just fallen. Here, it uses a word that can in other settings be used to intentionally uh, refer to prostrating oneself, falling down on your face in the sense of humbling yourself before a superior, in particular someone to worship. But here the idea is that it's not intentional. You fell down because you're weak or something happened. Something hard came upon you, or you just gave out. You don't have it anymore. You're worn out. You're overwhelmed, or something has hit you really hard. And the same thing with being bowed down. And he says the Lord supports those and sustains those and lifts up such people. Consider that if you find yourself in such a position, maybe this year has absolutely taken it out of you. And not only are you tired, but you're overwhelmed, and things have been hard. Hard challenges, trials, painful things have happened. You say, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it this year. I don't know how I'm going to keep going. Look to the Lord. He is the one who sustains those who fall. And he raises up those who are bowed down. He is our help. He is the one who provides. Verse 15 says, the eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due time. Picture a little bird looking to its mother. In fact, that's the picture Jesus gives Uh, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not worth much more than they? And on that basis, he says in Matthew 6, 25, for this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink or for your body as to what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. God, he says in verse 16, opens his hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. This implies that God is capable of doing this. He's the one who has all the resources. He's the one who can provide. He has the capacity to do this, but he also is willing. This speaks of God's generosity. God doesn't have a closed hand. He's not the kind of person we have to go and pry his fingers open. He opens his hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. So if you're in need and if you're struck down, this is the place to look. This is where you ought to go. And if you're not, why are you not looking to the one who has and is willing to give of all of these things? God's care for the needy, his help to his creatures is on display. And then David says he's worthy of praise for his grace to the godly. His grace to the godly. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, verse 17, and kind in all his deeds. That is to say, he's good in all that he does. God himself is good, and because of his righteous character, he is looking for a particular type of person to bestow uh, the fullness of his blessings upon. He is the one who, generally speaking, gives to all in the world. If someone has food, if someone has clothing, if they have any blessing, that's because God is the one who has distributed this, verses 14 through 16 tell us. But there's a particular subset of God's creation that receives his particular blessing, and those are the godly, the ones who are his, the ones who are characterized by living in a way that pleases him. Not that they live perfectly, as we know from the scriptures, but that they sincerely live for him. They trust him. They fear him. And so verse 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. This is the first direct statement that even though God is generous to all, if we want to receive all that he can give us, and really the most significant things, there need to be a few things that are true about us as well. Those who not only call upon him, lots of people pray, but those who call upon him in truth, in truth. And this doesn't mean that you're accurately restating some promise from the scripture, as if you can just say the words and claim those promises from God, as people sadly try to do. What this means is in truthfulness and honesty and faithfulness, in sincerity, that you actually are going to God with uh, some kind of right motives. Now, we know we can't dig into the matters of our heart and know every single potential motive that could possibly be there. Often we're kept from prayer and asking God for things because we're worried that somewhere deep in the darkest recesses of our heart, we might have some motivation that's not 100% pure. And we use that really as an excuse to not go to God in prayer or at least an overblown fear and a skewed fear of what God expects from us or at least what he requires before coming to him. Here, though, it does tell us that we ought to call upon God in truth, meaning that we actually do want to live for him, and we are not being deceitful about it, that we're asking for help, and that in the meantime, we're trying to align our will with his, and we're trying to do what he says, and that where we're not doing that, we go to him for help with that as well. And that we're not trying to pretend to be something that we're not, to go before God and ask him for things, but we're not willing to do the things that he says. We 
want to call upon the Lord in truth. And when we do, look at this, he is near. He is near. What a beautiful picture. What would life be like for you if you thought and knew God is near at all moments? What a wonderful promise that God is near those who call upon him. God listens to those who fear him. Verse 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. When we are worried about our circumstances or when we are in trouble, where do we go? Do we look to human means of protection? There's a place for doing that alongside what he describes here. We ought to fear the Lord and respond with a worshipful heart of awe before God, reverencing him and saying, I am going to align my heart to his, and he is the one who protects me. In fact, verse 20 says just that the Lord keeps, the Lord keeps all those who love him. The idea is of watching over, looking out for, protecting. He is the one who does this. He is our protection. He is the one who does this for those who love him. And so it's our responsibility to cultivate this love. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Again, a noble goal for the year ahead would be to cultivate a love for God, to love him, to have an affection for him, to have a priority for him in your heart, to draw near to him that he might draw near to you. Well, David closes with two things, a warning and a final commitment. The warning is this, the wicked he will destroy. God opens his hands, he gives to all, he's gracious to all. Maybe you're here and you've received all of these things and yet your life is still against what God has said in his word. You haven't come to him for salvation. You haven't put your heart trusting him. You haven't cried out to him for mercy. You are part of the wicked and he says the wicked he will destroy. This is not where we want to be. We want to be on the side of those that God cares for in these very specific ways, these to save them and to be near to them. And so today is the day to turn from your wicked ways, to avoid destruction, and instead to find the salvation and the blessing and the nearness of God that he promises. David, having said all these things, makes a closing commitment. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord. And all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. It's a closing commitment that he makes. And so as you consider what this year might look like, why don't you start today with this? A commitment this very day and day by day to join with David in praising God and blessing his name. And in encouraging one another in the practice of pondering and speaking about God's greatness from here to forever and ever. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are worthy of praise, and we praise you for your goodness and your greatness and your wonderful works. Help us to be the kind of people that you tell us here we ought to be. We thank you that you are the kind of God that you tell us here that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.